Hey, this morning, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 to start with, so probably the easiest uh, scripture you've ever had to turn to in your life in church. You're going to need to keep your finger there for just a minute, because I want to kind of bring you along to where we're going to go this morning. This is our last teaching for now. I have a feeling we're going to be back here, probably maybe in the, within the year, maybe in a couple of years. Uh, but this is our last teaching for this round on prayer as a practice. Doesn't mean that you're never going to hear anybody at this church talk about prayer again, but how do you integrate prayer in a disciplined, practiced way into your life in the hope of being transformed into the image of Christ, into Christ-likeness? That's our goal in any part of spiritual formation. It's not to become better. It's not to become wiser. It's not to become better stewards of certain things or better parents or better husband or wife. Those are all symptoms. Those are side effects of us becoming like Christ. That's the objective. That's the goal. And it's the objective of any of the disciplines themselves. We're also not trying to become the kind of people who can brag to our life group that we pray three times a day and score spiritual points. We want to pray three times a day or five or one or every other day or whatever rhythm works for us because we actually intend to be in God's presence. And we believe, as I'm going to try to build a case today, that that's always been the objective of humanity and that it's also where we're all going eventually. So last week we touched a little bit on the fi- well, not a little bit. We spent the majority of our time on the fourth fundamental of prayer. We're going to go there just for a minute again today and remind you of what that is. But the goal that I have is to try to, to do what I told you I'd do last week, to try to show you how the story of the whole Bible, the story of the scriptures, totally illustrates and expects and assumes that God has opened himself to our influence, that that is not so countercultural as it may feel like it is to us today, but actually from the perspective of God's word, that's normal and regular, and that if we don't have it, we're missing something really, really key. So, I'll back up a little bit, and then we'll get there. Many of you probably have read or seen uh, the film adaptations of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, In my life, they're a personal favorite. I try to reread the series once a year. I haven't done it in two years, so I'm overdue, just confessing that to you. Uh, But I think they're an incredible allegory for the way that God created the world and the way that Jesus shows up on the scene and how he himself is a part of the Godhead, and he's redemptive, and he's personal, but he's also strong and just. And so the author of that book uh, wrote a lot of other stuff. And maybe you've been around Christian college Bible studies long enough, or you were in a small group with somebody, or when you graduated from high school, a person handed you a copy of a book called Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity is, from many people's perspective, C.S. Lewis's magnum opus. It's the pinnacle of his writing. It's the most helpful nonfiction work that he ever put together. But what you may not know is that even though that book was published in 1952 as a complete work, it was actually a series of radio talks. C.S. Lewis had never done any public oration before this point. He had occasionally lectured on college campuses. He himself was a language professor at the University of Oxford, uh, which is where he had residence for a very long time. Uh, But he had never addressed big, giant groups of people. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a local church elder. He was just a regular guy who was a gifted writer. And so the BBC invited him which is a totally different world, in 1941 and 1940, between 1941 and 1944, to give a series of radio lectures. In the evening, each of them is between eight and ten minutes long, and C.S. Lewis does his very best in this series of lectures to logically, and more or less without the Bible's help, which is a very interesting way to do it, but to logically present the case for Christianity. The way that he does that is first he builds out this chain of ideas that leads to the existence of a God, some kind of God. And we wouldn't call that a Christian belief. That's a theistic belief, that there's some God somewhere who did something. So Lewis builds that. And then building block number two, the stacks on top of that one, is the idea of a Christian theology. So not just a generic God, but the God of the Bible, a God who is good, who does things on purpose, who has a will and a perspective and laws and things of that nature. And then building block three is Christian ethics. So he takes a God who exists, who can be known, a Christian God, 
and he traces out all of the ramifications that come into play if that's true. If there is a God who does have a will and does say what's right and wrong, then how should we live in light of that? That's what ethics means. And then finally, part four is he presents the Christian God again as the only logical conclusion. It's where his famous line you may have heard before that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You may have heard that alliterated phrase before. If you haven't, it's helpful that Jesus either was uh, full of dishonesty or he was out of his mind or he is who he says he is. And when presented with the facts and the arguments all made, it sure seems like he really is who he says he is given the other two alternatives. Now, here's what I love about this book. There's a paragraph in the second to last chapter of this book where C.S. Lewis basically takes everything that he has said so far picks it up, and dumps it in the trash. And then he comes right back to it again. Right after this paragraph is over, it's almost like we kind of get a glimpse behind the curtain of what's really going on in his heart and his mind. And then he goes right back to finishing the work that he was there to do. There are some people who believe that this paragraph was an editorial additive. It was added in later when he put this thing into writing. There's no record of him having ever spoken this on the radio. And so here's why I like this. I love when we read somebody who's really smart and really composed and has it all together, and then every once in a while you get a peek into their inner life, and you realize who they really are, not just the them who's professional, not just the version of them that can impress people with big words and smart ideas, but the version of them that's connected to God intimately and personally. When you read this paragraph, you can tell that C.S. Lewis doesn't really know how to describe what it is that he's talking about. He's so good with language and word pictures and analogies, and he does that for the entire rest of the book. But he, he kind of steps up to a reality that he thinks is important enough to present to you that he tries, but he doesn't know exactly how to get it across to the point that I'm going to read it to you in just a second. You're going to see that he finishes this, this quote with two questions that are just rhetorical questions. He doesn't ever come back and all the way answer them. He just presents them to you to ponder and to consider and to think on. Here is the nature of this reality that C.S. Lewis can't quite put into words. It's the idea of life with God. Not life in, just in God's name, not life that occasionally goes to God's church, not life that knows God's Bible better than anything else, but a life that is actually lived in close companionship, in partnership with God himself. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, one of my favorite quotes of all time. This quote haunts me. He says, good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. Okay, so this is classic Lewis. This is a helpful analogy. We're not just taught things. They stick to us. Okay, I know about diseases. This is making sense so far. He goes on to say, if you want to get warm, then you must stand near the fire. That makes sense. If you want to be wet, then you must get into the water. Okay, CS, I follow you so far. If you want joy and power, peace and eternal life, then you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Then he says, and this could be a challenging thought for some of us, they're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. What's not? Power and joy and peace and eternal life. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Have you ever heard anything like that before in your life? <laughs> That's a little less concrete than C.S. Lewis typically is. He says, if you are close to this fountain of energy, then the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. And then here's his rhetorical questions. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? And once a man is separated from God, what else can he do but wither and die? In this famous masterpiece of logical argument for the reasoning behind the Christian faith, right as C.S. Lewis is about to pull the train into the station, we've been on this ride with him. His listeners on the radio have been following him for three years of evening addresses, eight minutes at a time, every Sunday night. And he presents them with this. 
he says basically, I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you other than that there's this thing that exists, and it's at the center of reality. It's the foundation of everything else that you've ever experienced, and you can get in or you can get out. But that's all I know to tell you. My friends, the more and longer that you read Christian thought, whether it's Mark the Evangelist in his biography of Jesus or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament or the Old Testament prophets, or it's Tim Keller, or it's A.W. Tozer, or it's C.S. Lewis, or whoever your favorite preacher of the day may be, at some point, all of them boil the thing down that they've been trying to say into this same idea, that there is a God out there, that he exists in a way that you can barely comprehend, and you can go with him, or you can go without him. And that's it. And all the logic and the arguments and the rhetoric and the figurative language and the word pictures in the world can't do anything for you that actually puts you into the presence of that God. You have to decide you want it, and then because you want it, you have to take the steps necessary to go there. Now, to me, the phrase, a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality, this to me is a call back to the first garden that we see in the book of Genesis, but it's also a foretaste of the garden we're going back to. In the new heaven and the new earth, God once again plants a garden right in the middle of everything he's doing, and there's a tree right in the middle of that garden again, and it's a good tree, and this time nobody eats from the wrong tree, and nobody brings sin into the world, and everything goes the way that it was supposed to. This idea of a central figure in the middle of creation, in the middle of everything that God has ever made, what we would call reality, this is a common concept in scripture. It doesn't jump off the page at you. But as you get to know the Bible, you begin to realize this is the thing that was always true. It's the thing that's still true behind this sort of curtain of eternity that we can't quite see past all the time. And it's also where we're going. It's our final destination. Splashing in that fountain of energy and beauty at the center of reality, that is the thing that you and I were put on the earth to do. That's where I want to go today. I want to show you, not just to prove it with proof text, but to demonstrate to you with great clarity that this is what the Bible has in mind for your life. And if you can catch that vision, if you can catch the idea that there is a God who is in the middle of everything that's happening and he is the foundation of reality, then the four fundamentals of prayer that we've been learning from Jesus in Luke 11 for the, the three weeks prior to today, they become almost obvious, almost so obvious that they go without saying. Now, maybe you've forgotten what those fundamentals are. They are that God is your father, that your father is within your reach, that cherishing your father is the point, and that your father has willingly opened himself to your influence. One of the last things we discussed last week was how alien that concept feels, that the idea that God wants to collaborate with you and I doesn't feel like something that we talk about a lot in church. It may feel a little bit scandalous, or depending on what tribe or camp you come from in the Christian world, it may be one of the reasons that you point your fingers at the other guys, and you go, well, they're too... They're too spiritual, or they're too emotional, or they're too personal, or their God's too little or too low, when in reality, God welcoming you into partnership with him is what the thing has been about from the beginning. My commitment to you is that we're going to spend our time looking at how collaboration with God in prayer is not a new idea. So let's do that. You're in Genesis 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. This is God's explanation of why he made people, what the human race is here to do, his original intent behind making you and me. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. And God here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit speaking amongst themselves. That's why we're dealing with plural pronouns here. Okay. Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creature that moves on the ground. In both verse 26 and 28 of Genesis 1, God makes it clear that his intention is to invest his own image into humankind. We could argue about what that means, but my perspective is that it's a spiritual awareness. It's the ability to have intelligence and freedom and creativity that God put into people. But he did that, verse 26 tells us, so that we can rule, which is probably not what you think the primary purpose of your life is, is to rule. You probably don't have a crown at home. I bet your eight-year-old daughter does, and you could wear it, and that'd be weird. I'm not recommending that, okay? But you probably don't think of your life as an exercise in dominion over the earth, in responsibility and conservation and development of all the things that are and that could be. God says that's where this is supposed to start. And it's supposed to start in a way that is collaborative. This happens alongside God. In the further, longer version of the story, when God puts man and woman in the Garden of Eden and gives them everything that they need to eat and to live and to prosper, he walks with them every day. And they speak together every day because they are co-laborers. They are collaborating together over this earth that God created. God being the ultimate ruler because he's the creator, but him having willingly chosen to give the office of ruler to humanity as well. Genesis chapter 1 is the very first evidence in the Bible that God's original intent for humanity was collaborative. So if you're taking notes, here's the first big point today. God's original purpose for humanity was collaborative oversight, or what we might call rule of the world. Now we think rule and we think military power and we think war and we think treaties and we think big crowns and lots of money and corruption and deceit. None of those things are God's definition of rule. Rule simply means to take responsibility for things and to provide direction to them so that they can fulfill their purpose. That's why I use the word oversight in my definition so that you know. Collaborative is a key word here because this is the issue that some of us are having trouble with. This is what's getting stuck in our teeth a little bit about the idea that God would willingly open himself to our influence. We're not familiar with the concept that God wants to collaborate. The word collaborative itself is made from the word labor or work crashed up against the, the prefix co, meaning that it's done together. Collaborative oversight means that God oversees the world, and because he has chosen to give us this responsibility, we oversee the world, and therefore, God and humanity oversee the world together. Within God's instructions to humanity in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are the seeds, sort of the glimmer of three things that I believe God intended to grow and develop as human civilization prospered across the face of the planet without sin involved. The first is we see the seeds of human intelligence. The idea that God would give us agency over creation and that we would pursue understanding creation. This is why the pursuit of science historically is actually a very Christian idea, even so some of our modern churches have lost sight of that a little bit. Genesis 1 and 2 also reveal the seeds of human freedom, that as God opens up creation to humanity, there's only a very short list of restrictions that he offers to them on what they shouldn't do. This means things like enterprise, ordering ourselves socially, developing language, and even teamwork are all very Christian ideas as well. Genesis 1 and 2 finally show us the seeds of human creativity, that we are allowed to bend and harness and connect and reroute the physics and the forces of the created world in order to build and create and explore and enjoy life with God. Art and all of its building blocks, including sound and color and texture and pattern, as well as invention and technology and conservation, these are also very Christian ideas. We shouldn't be fooled into thinking that the picture we see at the Garden of Eden is, is God's final finished product. 
he is setting man and woman on the rails with great freedom, great intelligence, and great creativity to see what's going to happen. And without sin, I still believe that eventually we would develop civilization and cities and technology and we would discover electricity and who knows what of those things God would have revealed to us that we wouldn't have had to find the hard way. So I'm not trying to tell you that there's something really specifically different about Adam and Eve that sets them apart in such a way that you can dismiss the idea that you're supposed to keep ruling. God's plan hasn't changed for us. The intention that he builds into man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 is still his intention, but we have broken it. We've destroyed it. The reader of Genesis 1 is meant to see the glimmer of civilization on the horizon coming. The immense potential of image-bearing creatures placed at the top of the created order with the purpose of collaborating with God to oversee the world. What an amazing exercise for our imaginations to just picture what that could be like, how different the world would be if we hadn't broken things. And folks, this is coming to us from page one, chapter one of the scriptures. In the beginning, God's plan for you and I was that we would live and grow and create and feel and experience and share and develop and build and protect and nurture and enjoy life with him. God's original purpose for humanity was collaborative oversight of the world. So why is it hard for us to still believe that that's the case? Why does this seem like a new concept when I've tried to show you that it's jumping off the page at us right out of the gate in Genesis 1? Because a lot of time has passed, right, in human history. We don't live in the garden anymore. Some things happened that kicked us out of the garden and made us unable to return. And it's also because our lived experience is that as human civilization has developed, It hasn't just been a breeding ground for beautiful collaboration with God. It's actually been a breeding ground for wickedness. It's been a breeding ground for rebellion. When enough people get together and follow their own plan, this is typically when the very worst things happen. This is the birthplace of genocide. This is the birthplace of catastrophe. This is the birthplace of war. This is where things start that go and go and go to the point that massive destruction follows behind. If you'll turn a page or two in your Bible to the right, look at Genesis chapter 2 for me, please. We're going to look at verse 15. This is God placing man and woman in the context of the Garden of Eden. And then in just a minute, we're going to look at how man and woman broke things. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Again, here we see the intelligence and the freedom and the creativity of humanity on display, and they are not the problem. God is setting man and woman free on this world to do what they will, assuming that their desires are good and right, as long as they keep themselves in bounds, as long as they choose not to do the few things that God has told them they may not do. Look now at Genesis 3-6 and see how those three things, creativity, intelligence, that agency, lead in a disordered way to the fall of mankind. This is Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew for the first time in their lives that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. The seeds of human freedom and intelligence and creativity didn't grow into a perfect and loving and just civilization according to God's original purpose. The desires of humanity were disordered, and as a result, they chose to create a new life for themselves in spite of God's desire to collaborate. They went their own way. They didn't consult with God. They didn't ask him what he thought. They didn't wait on him to give them what they might need. They took it for themselves. They went their own way. And this has been the story of human civilization every minute since. Things went wrong quickly. 
If you're taking notes, the second point that I want you to understand is this, that God's original purpose was hijacked by disordered human longings. Now, this is important to note because probably your own disordered longings are the thing that tells you you can't just ask God for whatever you want. It's probably the thing you've heard preached against most often in your church life, that you're going to ask God for the wrong things, that you're going to make the wrong things a priority, you're going to pray selfish prayers, you're going to pray myopic prayers, you're going to pray short-sighted prayers. But here's the deal. In a setting, in a world where your desires are ordered rightly by God, and you're in intimate, personal relationship with God, you can ask him for anything. He wants you to do that because his original vision is what? To co-labor with us, to work together for the good of the world that he has made. The root problem of the world is that the human spirit is chronically ill with self-centered desires. This is what we call sin in the Bible. Sin is what motivates us to do what is wrong and to not do what is right. And it all starts with us wanting something other than what God has offered us. One of the through lines of the whole Old Testament is the constant rejection of God by people who are supposedly loyal to him. And then God will reapproach them and he'll restore that broken relationship only to have people reject him again. It happens in every single book of the Old Testament. One of the best examples comes to us from the book of Exodus chapter 32. So if you have your Bible open, go one more book to the right, find Exodus 32. I'll give you a second to go there. We were actually in Exodus 32 one year ago today, which I think is kind of cool. You're probably not a preaching nerd like I am, but it's kind of fun when stuff like that works out on accident. We were uh, working toward the end of our one year in the book of Exodus a year ago, and we preached this exact passage. I want to approach it from a little bit of a different angle. For context, the story of Exodus is the story of God resetting humanity by modeling a life lived between himself and the nation of Israel, a group of people that he chose and grew and cultivated and is trying now to teach to live with him in relationship. Unfortunately, as is always the case in the Bible and in our lives, the group of people who could have been part of the solution to the problem proved to be just as much a part of the problem as anyone else has been. This is Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and is kind of a pseudo-priest at this point, and they said to him, Get up, Aaron, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses has been up on the top of a mountain meeting with God face-to-face for about 40 days, one of the longer spiritual retreats in the Bible. In the meantime, God's people gathered in tents at the base of the mountain are really impatient. They're upset, they're nervous, they don't know what's going to happen. They don't feel like they've arrived in the promised land because they're living in makeshift tents in the desert. So they feel like God's still got something else coming for them, but they don't want to wait anymore. It's the story that we see all over the Bible. It's the same thing that leads Abraham and Sarah to bring Hagar into their relationship and birth Ishmael. It's this sense of God's got a plan, but mine's shorter, so I like mine better, and we'll just go with mine. And we'll try to get to what God had in mind, but we'll do it faster and with less resistance. In this particular instance, they choose idolatry. Here's how Aaron responds. We'd expect him to say, no way, wait on Moses. Instead, he says, break off the gold earrings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So Aaron accepts the offer. He decides to go along with this thing. And all of the people broke off the gold earrings that were on their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. He accepted the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molten or a sculpted or a metal calf. Then they said... These are your gods. So the people are now in a worship service, calling in response back and forth to each other, saying to one another, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, if you don't know the story of the Exodus, this is not true. (laughs) They're wrong. 
Uh, a metal calf made out of their earrings did not deliver them from Pharaoh. It did not lead them through the desert. It did not provide food for them every morning. It did not give them water when there was no water to drink. It did not part the Red Sea. It does not love them. It did not pursue them. It's never heard their prayers. It's a metal cow. It doesn't do anything. It just sits there. But they've convinced themselves that this should be the object of their worship. When Aaron saw this, he's like stoked. He's like, awesome, let's add an altar to the mix. Why not? He built an altar before it. And he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we will give a feast to the Lord. Literally, he's pointing at the cow and saying, this is Yahweh, and tomorrow we offer this metal cow that we just made a few minutes ago some food. Who's in? And everybody goes, we're all in, because that's how they're going right now. Things are not great for them, okay? They don't really <laughs> have it figured out. So they get up early the next day. They set their alarms early. They get up. And they offer burnt offerings, and they bring peace offerings, which are things that God has taught them to do. And they sit down to eat and drink, and they rise up to play, which is a nice way of saying every manner of debauchery you can imagine these people engaged in, in the name of worshiping this metal cow. Now God sees and God hears, so let's see what happens in verse 7. Yahweh spoke to Moses. So we're cutting to a new scene. The camera moves to the top of this mountain where God is meeting with, Yah with Moses. And Yahweh says, Moses, go. Time's up, sorry, retreat over, go. Descend, because your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. I always love that, that God's like, these are, your, these are your kids, Moses, so can you go handle your kids, please? Can you get your kids to do the right thing? God goes on to say, they've quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them, which is true, we've just seen them do it. They've made for themselves a molten calf, they've bowed down to it, and they've sacrificed to it. And they've even said, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Yahweh is quoting the people. That means he's been watching the whole thing happen, even though they feel like he's way far away on this mountaintop with Moses, who seems to be God's special favorite guy. God is still in their midst. He hears and sees everything that they're doing. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen these people. And it doesn't mean God's just glanced their way. It means he has searched them. He has known them. He knows them intimately. And here's what he knows, that they are a stiff-necked people. They are stubborn, and they will not change unless they are broken. That's what that means, verse 10. So now, Moses, leave me alone. God is still speaking. And allow my anger to burn against them so that I may destroy them. And I will make from you, Moses, a great nation. So God's reset is now getting a reset. That's what's going on here. God is mad enough, the Bible uses the word angry enough, that he's saying to Moses, I just went to all this trouble. We toppled all of these gods. We crossed the ocean. I made uh, manna fall from heaven. I gave him water. And I don't, I don't care. I'm done. We're going to start over again. This is like flood 2.0. This was supposed to be my people. Not going to happen. I just, I can't do it. They're not going to change, Moses. They're not going to change. We, you, you knew it. I knew it. I don't know what we're doing up here. All right? And then Moses responds in verse 11. He sought the favor of Yahweh. That's really important. He came to God as a friend. He came to God not as an antagonist, but as an ally, and as one who saw God and heard God and knew God. And he said, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He's saying, no, God, you did this. It wasn't me. It was you. You did this, and you did it in a way that no one can deny is divine. He goes on in verse 12 to say, why should the Egyptians get to say? It was for evil that Yahweh led these people out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. He turns his attention back to God, and he says, probably the most bold prayer in the Bible, turn from your burning anger and relent of this evil against your people. Remember, verse 13, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel Moses is calling way back to before anybody even went to Egypt in God's name. Remember your servants to whom you swore 
by yourself. Remember, you told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've spoken about, I will give to your descendants, and they will inherit it forever. Verse 14. Then Yahweh relented over the evil that he had said he would do to his people. Now, here's what's really tricky about that word, relented, all right? And some of you guys are not going to like this, but I'm just telling you this is the way it is. You go home, get on BibleHub.com, do your research, email me, we'll talk about it, okay? That word, relented, that we translate in English as relented, I put it in bold and italics for you to really make it jump out there. Every other time that that word is used in the Old Testament, it is not translated as relented, it is translated as repented, with a P. Now, that probably sticks in your theological teeth a little bit, right? How can God repent? Who is he repenting to? Can God sin? No, because God decides what's right and wrong, and whatever he wants to do is right. I know all of that's true. No one is saying that none of that is real. What Moses is letting you know is that in the truest and most basic sense of the word, God changed his mind. He was going to do this. He was sure of it. He had the emotion behind it. He had evidence for why it was necessary. He made the plan. He was ready to execute. And somebody prayed, and he changed his mind. And what is at this point, probably more than two million people got to keep their lives that day. What did they deserve? Judgment. Sure. I'm not here to discount that at all. But from Moses' perspective, there was another way for God to be redemptive in dealing with their sin and forgiving and merciful, having to move all of that sin onto somebody else who would come someday and have to die for it, just like those people deserve to die that day for it. Moses has that vision. He doesn't have a name to use yet, but he is thinking of a Messiah, of a Savior, of somebody who's eventually going to be called Jesus Christ who will do this work. And he's saying to God, don't give this back to the Egyptians. Don't let the bad guys decide that you couldn't handle the Israelites either. You can, and you have, and you will, and I can see it. So relent, or to literally use the word in Hebrew, he looked at God and said, repent, and God did. He changed his mind. He turned and went the other way. Now, this is incredibly significant for you and I. Because if we misunderstand the original purpose of humanity, this doesn't make any sense. This feels like Moses is stepping out into an area that's, that's dangerous territory, where none of us should ever go with him and none of us should follow him. But in reality, Moses is taking advantage of a relationship that's built on access, that God designed human beings to have, to collaborate. That's all Moses is doing. Moses isn't saying, okay, God, start over with me. And while you're at it, man, I could use a nice big mansion with a pool in the backyard. I'm sick of this desert stuff. Like Moses isn't turning God's will in on himself to build his own kingdom. Moses is saying, God, together with you, allow me to recommend that this might be a different path forward that brings glory to your name. And that prayer falls on listening ears that say, okay, okay, Moses, we'll do it that way. We'll be patient, but it's going to be hard on you. You see, this is one of the things that we forget about this story. Because Moses convinces God to not wipe out Israel, Israel continues to get on Moses' nerves so bad that at one point later in his life, he gets angry enough that he slams his stick down on a rock, and God says, okay, you're not coming into the promised land. You know what would have never happened if God had wiped out Israel that day? Moses would have never had to die on this side of the Jordan River. It's all connected together, okay? Moses ends up making, paying a huge price and making a personal sacrifice to go with God into the way of mercy. Obviously, he can't see his own future, but in the moment, it's worth it to him to say to God, let's be merciful. Please be merciful. Relent, repent, and turn from your anger. So this is part, point three for you, okay? And I'm gonna say this to you 
in a complicated way, then I'm going to simplify it a little bit more, and then I'm going to show you the simplest version. But I can't start with that one because some of you would go, no, absolutely not. I've got to work my way there. Okay, here we go. Prayer functions as the exchange of ideas and experiences, what I would call a life. It's the exchange of a life that's oriented around the collaborative, meaning God and humans working together, oriented around the collaborative restoration of God's original purpose, shared oversight. Prayer, in other words, is a relational exchange with our Father in which we work with him to restore his original vision of co-laboring to oversee the world. That's all Moses is doing, is joining God in ruling. Let me say it to you the simplest way that I know how. Prayer is how you and I collaborate with God to save the world. That's what's at risk if we don't pray. And I'm not saying that to threaten you. I'm trying to invite you into something that is essentially, by nature of being a human made in God's image, is your birthright. You have this access. You already have God's number in your soul. You just have to dial it. He's on the other end. He's listening. He's waiting. And what that means for you and I is we can let go of the rituals and we can let go of the fancy language and the posturing and the fear and did I sin too much to pray? None of that matters if we're on a mission together. Like think of the last time that you and your family had to fly from Alaska anywhere. You spent half of that journey upset about something, right? Unless you're totally different from my family. It's rough. But at no point would you have said, well, I just don't want to, in my case, I don't want to disturb Andy anymore so I'm just not going to let her know that our flight was delayed. She'll figure it out. She doesn't want me to get involved any more than I already have. No, at some point, the relationship can only go forward if I bite the bullet and do what's hard, even if it's uncomfortable. And that's the nature of relationship. That's how we talk to people that we care about when we're working toward an objective together. And according to God's word, we are. Your life isn't passive. It's not worthless. But you forfeit so much of what could be yours in God's kingdom when you choose not to acknowledge him, when you go through your life without living with him because he's there and he's ready and it's the point. Now that statement, if I've done my work well today and I've done my very best to be as clear as possible with you, that idea that prayer is how you and I collaborate with God to save the world, that should frame and brace the fourth and hardest fundamental of prayer from last week, that God, your father, has willingly opened himself to your influence. That's not new it's not because you're amazing, it's because you're made in his image. And his plan for you is to rule with him over this planet. To steward and create and harness and love and give and serve. All of those things happen with God and they almost never happen without him. Now as Christians we've learned how to look like we're doing those things, so don't get me wrong. But if you want substance to a life like that, it only happens when you're intimately connected to God. This was always the way that things were supposed to be between us and God. So if you can with me, come back to Luke 11. I know you weren't there yet in your Bible, but go to the New Testament and go back where we've been the last few weeks. We've been looking at verses 1 through 4. I want to look at verse 5 on down through the rest of Jesus' teaching on prayer. And I'm hoping that the notes and the tune and the themes of prayer are going to start to kind of jump off the page for you in the way that Jesus teaches how we should approach the Father in prayer. In Luke 11, verse 5, I'm going to start reading now just for the sake of time today because we've got a few more things we've got to do before we're done. Jesus is still answering the question his disciples asked, which was, will you teach us to pray the way that John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray? And Jesus says yes, and then he gives the four fundamentals of prayer. That's where we've been for three weeks. And he goes on to say in verse 5, he gives an example. He tells a story that we're supposed to find ourselves in. And he says this. He says, suppose that one of you has a friend. 
which maybe is an assumption for some of us. I don't know. Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, so very late at night, and you say through the door of his house, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine has stopped here while on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Then, Jesus says, he will reply from inside the house, so the guy doesn't even open the door or a window, okay? He's not, not talking to you through your, the ring camera. He's like yelling through the side of the house. Do not bother me. Like, no is the answer. Go away is the answer. The door is shut. My children and I are in bed, I guess, for now. Now everybody's awake again. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you this, disciples. Even though the man inside the house will not get up and give you anything because you are his friend, he's already said as much, yet because of your sheer persistence, he will get up and he will give you whatever you need. So, here's the point of that story, verse 9. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, church, if you think that God is 90 million light years away, and you have to be perfectly morally good to get him to pay attention to you and listen to your prayers, this feels like crazy talk. This feels insane. It feels totally separated and removed from any experience you've ever had in church. But if God is your father, and he's close at hand, and the point is to love him, and he's opened himself to your influence then the idea that you would ask and seek and knock and be welcomed to do those things, that your sheer persistence would not be offensive to God, but would communicate that you're serious about the thing you're speaking to him about, the friend in my house at midnight who needs to eat, that's the motivating factor. There's something out there that needs to be done, God. We need to do this together. This is Moses on the mountain saying, don't kill him. If that's the way you come to God, Jesus seems to think that it's that simple. But that's all you have to do is come in honesty and in the context of relationship and say to God what it is that you need. Now, look at verse 11, but keep the idea that God is your father in your mind. This is the key to understanding the whole rest of what Jesus is going to say here. He asks a question. He says, what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Now, my daughter's never asked me for a fish but I would probably give her a fish if she wanted a fish, I guess, for her birthday. He goes on to say, what if he asks for an egg? Your kids ask you guys for a lot of eggs. Would you give them instead a scorpion? Okay, a little bit of this is lost on us from the, from the Old Testament world. God says this. It's rhetorical. He's assuming everybody in the crowd is going, no, I would give my kid an egg if they want an egg. It's a little weird, but if they're into eggs, that's fine. I'd give them the egg, okay? No, God, I'm not going to switch the egg for a scorpion at the last minute. Jesus says, if then... Although you are evil, so he's pretty blunt, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will who? Your heavenly Father. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. God is your Father. Ask your Father, and he's ready to give the things you need, the Spirit of God who is the energy source and the teacher and the advocate and the counselor and the encourager who can do everything in you that you can't do for yourself. Jesus says, just ask. Your Father is ready to send him at a moment's notice. Church, I hope you can see what Jesus is driving at. That, that if you ask, your Father will answer. And if you ask for what you want and what you need, your Father's not going to be mean to you. He's not going to ignore you. He's not going to set a trap for you. When God is our Father, he chooses to yield to our desires. Again, I have to be so, so clear here with you. So I'm going to repeat myself a little bit from last week. God is not bound by cosmic law. 
God is not required by some ancient pact that he signed to do whatever you say. He doesn't work for you. He's not your slave. And he's under no moral obligation to obey you simply because Jesus died in your place. God is not weak. He's not petty. He is not unsure of himself. And he doesn't need your help. But in spite of all of those things, he does willingly yield himself by choice to his children. Please understand that I'm describing to you what the Bible makes obvious and what Jesus implies every single time he prays that God has willingly opened himself to the influence of his children. If you can, think back just a few minutes today to our discussion of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It was the disordered desires of humanity that hijacked God's original purpose. It wasn't that they had desires. That wasn't what was wrong. It was that the desires were put onto things that couldn't fulfill them and that listening to those desires and following them away from God broke the relationship with God. But the intelligence of human beings and the creativity of human beings and the agency and freedom of human beings, they are not the problem. You are not the problem. The things you choose to do because you don't trust God are the problem. They are every problem that you have. When those good and right desires that are programmed into you by God are brought under the rule of the Spirit of God and you are regenerated because Jesus Christ in your place pays for your whole life that was wrong, his death and resurrection clear, and he shows that you can enter into new life with him. When that happens, you can bring your desires shaped and formed by the character of Christ to God. You're allowed to. It was the original plan. The first man and the first woman were not robots. They were not cyborgs. They were not androids. They were people, like you are a person. And when and where their desires, given by God, put into them by God, were rightly ordered, they collaborated with God. They spoke to him. Every day they had a team meeting around the table where God rolled the blueprint out again. And they talked about how are things going and is rule going well and do the zebras have enough to eat and are the giraffes fomenting rebellion and what about the elephants? I mean, this is, it sounds kind of Narnia-esque a little bit, but this is the world that God gave them to work with him for its flourishing and its growth and the development of civilization. It was not creativity that broke the world. It was not intelligence that broke the world. It was not freedom that broke the world. It was the dis ordering of those things. It was choosing to wield God's tools as weapons back toward God that broke the way that this whole thing was supposed to go. So don't tell yourself that wanting God to do something for you is wrong. That isn't true. Don't hesitate to approach God because you're feeling passionate or because you're emotional or because you're broken or because you're upset. Don't hide those things from God. Don't whitewash yourself inside before you're willing to address God, your Father. It is the submission of your whole self, good and bad and ugly. It is giving those things to Jesus that will reorder your desires so that you change from having this barrier between you and God because you want to do it your own way and God has a different plan for your life to the point that now your desires become some of the most strongest and honest motivations that you have. Rightly ordered desires drive us into the Father's arms. They bring us to God because we are so motivated to do what is right and good for ourselves and others that we come to the author and source of life and we appeal to him because no court in the land is just and no politician is fair and no ruler or king is not corrupt. They've all been bought and compromised and they're wicked and dirty and so we go around all of them and we go to God our Father and we say, God, you made me this way. I want justice. I don't know where to find it. I want life for people who are dead and I can't do that on my own. I want to bring something of eternal value to every relationship that I have. I want to always be speaking life to people, and no one can teach me to do that. Where can you turn but your Father? This has been his will from the beginning, to work 
with you. And this is why prayer is such a central part of what it means to go with God. It's not just a blessing over your lunch. It's not just a get out of jail free card when you didn't study for your exam. And it's not just a space to vent. And it's not just a space to meet with God. It can be all of those things. It can be some of them. It is the byproduct of going step by step with God through your life. Church, you reach the point when you are in Christ where Jesus' life and death and resurrection are all we are. It becomes all that you are. It becomes all that you know. It becomes all that you want. And then... Not only can we ask God to do what we think is right, we actually should ask God to do what we think is right. That is the way that we join him in pursuing the reconciliation of the world. I know that sounds lofty. Maybe the way that I'm explaining this to you sounds a little too complicated or philosophical or theoretical, but I'm telling you how to do it. Jesus told you how to do it. You pray. You just pray. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray until your life is so interwoven with God's life that you share your every thought with him as quickly as it enters your mind. He becomes closer than anybody else that you've ever known, and you find real life in him. Not just eternal life, but life that starts now, today, with him, moment by moment. This is Jesus' example to you. Now, I wish we had a lot more time together, but we're getting close to the cutoff for today, so I just want to quickly look at one last passage with you. John 17. Go to the right in your New Testament if you have the Bible open. I've been asking God for weeks to give me a way of making prayer clear to you. This is tough. It's hard to describe this stuff to you in a way that's both technically sound, but also motivating enough that you'll actually do it. It's a fine line. I'm trying to walk, so I hope it's been helpful. I want to look at the very last prayer that Jesus prayed with his apprentices on the night before his death. I think this is as close as we can get to pure communication between Jesus, our rabbi and example, and God the Father himself. We'll look just at the first five verses for the sake of time. But this whole chapter would be a great thing for you to read this week if you need something to add into your time with God. Okay, here we go. John 17, verses 1 through 5. So Jesus has been teaching. He's revealed a ton of really tough stuff to his disciples. They're unhappy. They're upset. One of them has left to betray him. Peter has put his foot in his mouth several times at dinner already, just kind of in an uproarious way, can't seem to settle down and understand what God's saying. And into this context, Jesus suddenly stops talking, and verse 1 says he just turns his eyes. He just boom, doesn't say, hey, everybody, could you guys calm down for a minute so we can pray? All right, we're going to pray for a minute. I'm going to pray over you for a minute. There's no ceremony at all. John remembers it this way. Boom, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he looked upward to heaven, and he said, Father, the time has come. It's chilling a little bit, isn't it? Can you imagine if we were having coffee together, and I was like, yeah, and I could probably meet you again next Thursday. Father, the time has come. And I just got up, and you were like, I don't go to your church anymore. I just decided (laughs) right now, uh, never again goodbye, I don't know you, keep my coffee, see you later. Okay, Jesus goes for it. He makes the assumption that the Father is right there. There's no circumstance. He doesn't have to pick up the line and wait for the dial-up tone. Is God going to answer? Is God going to answer? He assumes that the Father has been there the whole time because he's been there the whole time. He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Verse 1 is fundamentals 1 and 2 of prayer, that God is your Father and he's within your reach. Jesus shows it to us. Jesus looked up with no formal introduction after dinner and spoke to Yahweh as if he had been there the entire time because he had been. Verse 2, Jesus goes on and says, Just as you have given him, your son, authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you've given him. This is the may your kingdom come language of this prayer. Eternal life, life with you, God, that I did that for anybody and everybody that I met. I brought your kingdom to earth. Let's keep that going. This is supposed to catapult us all the way back to Genesis 1 if we've been paying attention. 
that God, Father, I've been doing the work. I've been putting the pieces back. I've been giving people life with you like it was always supposed to be in the beginning. I've done my work. Verse 3, now this is eternal life. John jumps in and kind of gives us this definition, that they would know you, the only true God, and that they would know Christ Jesus. What is eternal life? Is it life that never runs out of time? Yes, but it's more than that. It's a life lived with God. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. The Greek word here doesn't mean educated knowledge about God. It means the close familiarity of companionship and proximity. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, God, by completing the work that you gave me to do. I was obedient. In Jesus' lexicon, obedience is synonymous with love. He says a few chapters earlier in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Jesus is saying, I completed the work of the Father because I cherish you. Because you, Father, are for me, and you are good, and you are right. That cherishing your Father is the point. And then in verse 5, he says, and now, Father, glorify me where? At your side, with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. Jesus is saying, Father, I'm coming home. The disciples don't get it yet, but Jesus is just a couple steps from stepping foot off of the earth and returning to eternity forever. He's saying to God the Father, let's get back to collaborating in eternity. Let's get back to the beginning before everything was broken and ruined. Jesus wraps his entire ministry back into collaboration with the Father. This is his prayer for you. This prayer is a snapshot of the life that he died to give you. This prayer is a snapshot of the life that he lived to show you. It is a life so strong and vibrant and dynamic that death itself could not bring it to an end. It is unique in that sense. And that uniqueness is not derived from Jesus' divinity. It's derived from Jesus' obedience and intimacy with the Father. If it was derived only from his divinity, then you too would have to be God by nature to take part in this life. And it's not the case. You are human in nature, loved and redeemed by a God who is divine, who was willing to also become human in nature on your behalf. And a life lived with God in prayer is open to you. A life lived with your Father. This is a life that you can have anytime you want it. If you'll throw off all the silly rituals and the fear and the formulas and the fancy language and just come to your Father and be with him and speak to him. Church, I love you and I want this so badly for each of you. Let me pray this for you right now. Join me, please. Father, it's overwhelming to try to essentially cast off the, the chains, it feels like to me, of everything that the world, my culture, the mindsets I've learned in school and at work and from my parents, I mean, everything, everything God has been pushing me to just focus on what I can, build a kingdom for myself, enjoy it as much as I can, and then die, and who knows what happens. And I believe in you, Father. I believe the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it's applied to me. And I still struggle to see the outworking of that in my daily life. I don't think I'm alone. I don't know. Maybe this is just a prayer for me, but I think it's a prayer for us, Father. We need your help. We live essentially non-spiritual lives because we have very little connection to your spirit because we don't know how and we don't know where he is and we don't know what he's going to do and is it spooky and is it scary and will I like it? Father, please open our eyes to the understanding that this has always been the blueprint for human beings, that what Jesus did is get us back to where we were supposed to go so that we can get where we're going together. This is also a glimpse of eternity. I pray, God, that that the gates of heaven would be swung wide today, that any people who are here who don't know you, who've never heard Christ's gospel presented, would surrender their lives to you once and for all. 
that they would enter into this kind of relationship where this sort of intimate communication is normal and daily and minute-by-minute intimacy with you. Father, we need you so badly, so, so badly. We love you, and so we're coming to you and we're asking, and we're trusting that you'll meet us here. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.